Father, we do give you thanks and praise for all things, Lord. We know that sometimes you are testing us. Sometimes you are giving us challenges to grow us and to strengthen us and that we can be good witnesses for others. Sometimes we get weary in that well-doing, Lord. Help us today to leave going, you know what? Whatever you deem necessary and right in my life, Lord, I will praise you anyway because you are worthy. It has nothing to do with circumstances that you are worthy to be praised. And Lord, we thank you so much that we can learn from your word. We can learn from the people there, the examples that you set for us. We can learn more about you by watching what you did in people's lives. And that's what your word is all about, is teaching us about you, your son, your power, your greatness, and who, just who you are, and that you want to be that for us as well. So help us to put our hearts and minds at ease about the things of this world and focus on you. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Y'all look bright. Smile. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it, right? That was a good prayer, good opening prayer. Daniel chapter 5. I don't think we're going to make it halfway through the book. That was my goal. I wanted to get through the sixth chapter, but it doesn't quite look like we're going to be able to do that. But we'll get close anyway. I have entitled our lesson, and this is the 20th study in the book of Daniel, number 20 today, A Bankrupt Banquet. Don't you think that's cute? Isn't that clever? Say yes. You like that? Spiritually Bankrupt Banquet. Daniel chapter 5 serves as a very stark contrast to chapter 4, the events of which took place 25 years later. Remember how I always tell you that little white space between the chapters? Here you go. Between chapter 4 and chapter 5 in that little white space, you can write 25 years. 25 years have passed. Daniel is now, they figure, about 81 years old. We have young girls who attend our Monday study, and I'm talking young. They're homeschool girls and they're teens. And I said, you know, life really moves quickly. Before you know it, you're old. <laughs> it just happens like that overnight. Just think, Daniel was 14 or 15 in September, and here we are in April, and he's already 81. That's, that's about how fast it seems to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, in chapter 4, we heard the once proud King Nebuchadnezzar unashamedly giving public testimony to the greatness of the God of heaven. And we called it his testimony tract, right? Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony tract. He told us how through his seven years of great humiliation, he had come to his newfound faith. Now, in chapter 5, we are introduced to a new king of Babylon. And he is actually Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. His name is Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar. That was Daniel's Babylonian name, and some people confuse the two. But his name was Belshazzar. And sadly, we soon find out, as soon as we get into the chapter, we find out that he had not at all benefited from his grandfather's hard-learned lessons. Isn't it a shame that we can't pass on to our next generation the hard lessons we have learned in life. I would so much like to 
be able to teach my children and my grandchildren, look, don't do it this way. Grandma and Grandpa did it this way, and it was hard, and we had to learn it the hard way. But it doesn't work through osmosis, does it? I wish it did. Seems like they have to learn all those lessons themselves. And he didn't learn anything from his grandfather. He neither took heed of his grandfather's testimony for God, nor had he, we find out, retained Daniel, wise Daniel, in his court as a counselor. Daniel is no longer in the palace court. However, there was one thing in which Belshazzar was like his grandfather. He was also proud. His, his pride, together with his insolence, his audacity, led him to cross over that mysterious line between God's mercy and his wrath. And thus we find that as God had suddenly struck, uh, interrupted, uh, struck like lightning, I was going to say, but as he had suddenly interrupted that prideful boast of Nebuchadnezzar as he was up on his palace rooftop, top, crowing like a peacock, and I know they don't crow, they honk, but that sounds funny, honking like a peacock, but there he was up there proudly saying how great he was, and God struck him with a form of monomania called boanthropy, so too did God suddenly strike Belshazzar in the midst of his spiritually bankrupt banquet by just the fingers of his hand, not even his whole hand, but just by fingers of his hand. And then later that same night, he interrupted Belshazzar's spiritually bankrupt life, not just the banquet, but his whole life, by way of the deadly hands of an enemy soldier. At the end of this chapter, Belshazzar is dead. He is slain. And the mighty Babylonian empire fell in just one night. The Babylonian head of gold was historically replaced, just as God had predicted. Remember in the dream of chapter 2, the image, he predicted that the head of gold would be replaced by the silver breast and arms of an inferior empire, and that was the Medo-Persian empire, consisting of two. That's why the two arms, the Medes and the Persians. So just as God had predicted, and also just as God had orchestrated, that took place in one night. The contents of Daniel 4 and 5 present us with a wider prophetic picture. It's always pointing out to something bigger than just what happened historically. This is not just about King Nebuchadnezzar and not just about Belshazzar, two individual men. There is a bigger prophetic picture. They represent for us kings and rulers during the whole time of the Gentiles. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, some Gentile rulers, some Gentile kings and other heads of state would come to know the true God. There have been some born again, some actual believers as heads of state and political rulers. Few, but some. More of them have been like Belshazzar. Far more have been like Belshazzar and proudly defy the true God to the end. Now, However, that's just one case in which Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar show about kings and rulers during the whole times of the Gentiles. But because of the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar, his conversion came after his seven years of beastly humility, eating the grass of the field like a cow, 
he more specifically he symbolizes those heads of state and nations and rulers who will be properly humbled and repentant and saved and ready to bow before the Lord following the seven-year tribulation. He represents that crowd. Belshazzar, who is the final king of Babylon, and he, what did he do that earned God's wrath? Well, he brazenly desecrated the vessels of the temple of God. He didn't have access to the temple itself over in Jerusalem. It had already been destroyed. But by desecrating the vessels from the temple, he was basically desecrating the temple. An abomination of desolation, you could call it. But he more specifically, therefore, symbolizes the final king of the times of the Gentiles who will openly defy God by desecrating the temple itself. And who is that last king of Babylon? The last king of the whole times of the Gentiles? He is known as the Antichrist. And Jesus said he would abominate the temple. And he will. And the lords of Babylon, the dignitaries with Belshazzar at this bankrupt banquet that he has that we're going to be looking at. These lords who are eating and drinking and merrymaking and carrying on and engaged in degenerate behavior with their king when the city fell, they picture not only probably the ten kings with the Antichrist, but they picture basically all of the ungodly during the tribulation who will be, as Jesus said, just like the people of Noah's days when destruction fell, what will they be doing? Eating and drinking and laughing and merrymaking and carrying on when suddenly God's wrath strikes. Just as the people of Noah's day, you know, making mocking him, and then suddenly it started to rain. Suddenly, night of this banquet, Babylon fell in one night. And in the end times, you know, people will be carrying on as usual with their normal lives, and suddenly things will start happening, right? Thing, occurrences in the sky, waters turning to blood. Just you read the book of Revelation and see all the plagues and the boils and everything that will be happening. So as Babylon fell in one day, Belshazzar's feast, so to Babylon the Great, representing really the whole ungodly world system, the whole thing is going to fall in one day. Tells us that in the book of Revelation 18, 8. Well, the date of the fall of Babylon, the night of this banquet, is known. It's well documented in history. It was October 12, 539 B.C., unless you were on a different part of the earth. It was still October 11th. So sometimes when you read a commentary, it'll say October 11th. Sometimes it'll say October 12th. But you know, it's different times in different parts of the world. So depending on where you were. And it was some 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. History is certain of this date. After the death of King Nebuchadnezzar, which was only about a year after his beastly experience. You know, he lived about another year. He sat on the throne again. But that he was old. Plus that um, experience really took a toll on his life. And so he died in 562 B.C. And after him, the empire began to rapidly deteriorate. He basically was the Babylonian empire. 
He was synonymous with it. And once he's gone from the scene, it just goes downhill. None of the males who succeeded him on the throne apparently paid enough attention to his testimony about the sovereign God to have become believers. How do we know that? Well, we know it because they all continued to worship the lifeless, deaf, and dumb gods and goddesses of Babylon. You know, the saying that God has only sons and not grandsons is true, isn't it? Because each, and I, w- I wish it wasn't in a way, I wish I could just pass on my faith to my children. Fortunately, we have, and they are all saved, but on to our grandchildren, because some of them we're not quite sure about yet. You know, they're still young. But don't you wish you could just pass that on? Not only the lessons you learned in life, but that you could pass on your faith to them. But each person has a free will, right? Each person has to come individually to God himself. Faith is not inherited automatically. So after Nebuchadnezzar's 43-year reign, he was succeeded on his throne. And here you go. The names aren't important, but this is interesting. History is interesting. I think it's interesting. I hope you do. But he was followed um, by his son named Evil Marodak. Can you imagine naming your son Evil? Don't do it. If you have a son and you want an unusual name, call him Good. (laughs) But not Evil. I just can't imagine calling his son Evil Merodach, but his name's in the Bible several times. He reigned only two years before he was assassinated and succeeded by his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law killed him, and then he took the throne. So you get that? Nebuchadnezzar's son was killed by his son-in-law, a man married to one of his daughters. Terrible. And that guy's name sounds like medicine. Nara Glasser. <laughs> Doesn't it? And he ruled for four years. He was one of the few who died a natural death. And then he was replaced by his, his child son. The boy was only a child. His name was Labashi Marduk. Strange names. Uh, He sat as a puppet king for only a few months before he was beaten to death. Isn't that terrible? I'm so glad my dad wasn't a king. (laughs) Um, Because so many of them are assassinated and just horrible things. And he was beaten to death by a band of conspirators, and those conspirators appointed one of their own, a man by the name of Nabonidus, to rule as the king of the Babylonian Empire. Problem was, Nabonidus had no connection to Nebuchadnezzar. He was not related at all, wasn't even married to one of his you know, daughters. So what he did to make up for that, and he did rule for 17 years, he, <clears throat> he either married one of the widows of Nebuchadnezzar or he married the widow of Nereglasser, who was a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, And he did that so as to strengthen his claim to the throne. So that, you know, through marriage he was connected to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he adopted the son of his wife, whoever she was, and he became the stepfather of that son. That son was Belshazzar. Belshazzar actually was a blood grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. In 553 B.C., which was three years into his rule, Nabonidus appointed Belshazzar to be the king of the city of Babylon. Not the king of the whole Babylonian empire. Nabonidus retained that title. 
He was king of the whole empire, but he assigned Belshazzar to be the king of just the capital city of Babylon. So Belshazzar is indeed king of Babylon. Now, why did he do that? Well, because he didn't want to live in Babylon. He wanted to go live in Tima of Arabia, which is where he was from. And that is where his mother, who was still alive at the time, was the high priestess of the moon god. And guess what the moon god's name was? Sin. S-I-N. <laughs> so he worshipped sin. Ooh. Everybody at this banquet, banquet actually did too, didn't they? <laughs> Making a play on words. But <clears throat> So 14 of the 17 years of the rule of Nabonidus as the, the emperor of the Babylonian kingdom were spent in Arabia, which was 500 miles west of Babylon. So he was like an absent king. He wasn't there. He was over in Arabia. His move was partially for his own protection. I don't blame the guy. Stay in Babylon, you're probably going to be assassinated. <laughs> so he goes to Arabia. But <clears throat> he had infuriated the very powerful priesthood of Marduk. You know, Marduk, he was the main god of Mab Babylon. He had a temple right in the middle of the city. To him, he was Nebuchadnezzar's favorite god, Marduk who used to be called Nimrod. Remember after Nimrod, who built the Tower of Babel, died, they made him into a god named Marduk. Well, Nabonidus enraged the priests of Marduk because he showed favoritism to Sin, <laughs> the moon god. And he, he accused the Babylonians of having provoked Sin's anger because of neglecting him. And so he wasn't very popular and he departed from Babylon and entrusted the reign of the city to his son, Belshazzar. Nobody was going to probably do anything to him because he was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And then he still did reign the empire. That's important to know because critics of the book of Daniel wondered why they said it was wrong when Belshazzar offers the third position of rulership to the one who can interpret the handwriting on the wall. And they said, well, why did he offer the third? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Nabonidus was really the emperor. He was the king of Babylon. So the best he could do was the third position. So it's actually very, very accurate. Now, when the Medo-Persian army of Cyrus the Great uh, headed toward the Babylonian capital, Nabonidus, over there in Arabia, he left Arabia, his safe haven, to return to Babylon with a plan for her, her protection. I guess he knew his son wouldn't do, do that, and we'll find out he didn't. But uh, so he, <clears throat> he comes to not only lead the Babylonian army against the, Medo, the Medes and the Persians, but he has a plan that isn't really so much of a military plan as it is a spiritual plan. What he, did, what he did is he went into all the suburbs around Babylon and he took from them, he actually stole from them all of their graven images, all of their idols. And he took them and he reinstalled them in Babylon, the capital city. His plan was that their presence there would help to protect the city. Sad, isn't it? That a bunch of statues is going to protect the, the city, but that was, that's the mindset of pagans who worship idols. However, this supposedly spiritual strategic move on his part only made him even more unpopular 
because the suburbs, the citizens of the suburbs were enraged with him because he left them without their gods to protect them against the Medes and the Persians. And then the priests of Marduk inside of the city, they were equally furious with him because in doing what he did, he was implying that Marduk was not powerful enough to protect Babylon. So you get it? So everybody's still mad at him. <laughs> he can't win. Now, until the... Um, oh, let me skip a sentence here. When, when the uh, Babylonian suburb of Sippor, and that was a, a pretty big one, it's also called in the Bible Gorsippa, when it did fall to the Medo-Persian army, the Babylonian army under Nabonidus was utterly destroyed. There's only a few that escaped, a few soldiers, and when they escaped, they ran into the walled city of Babylon. But the army basically that Nabonidus was leading was destroyed, and he was taken a captive. But Cyrus, he was a, as far as rulers are concerned, he was a good one. He was actually a pretty merciful man. And he's the one who, remember, allowed the Jews to leave and go back to their homeland. He was, he was pretty good. And uh, he treated Nabonidus fairly. He didn't harm him. And he exiled him to a pretty nice place to live. And that is where Nabonidus lived out his life and died a natural death. Now, until the description of what is called the Nabonidus Cylinder. It's a clay cylinder about that big. You can go online and see it. It's in the British Museum in London. It was discovered in southern Iraq in 1854. But until the discovery by archaeologists of that particular cylinder, the critics of Daniel scorned the author. You know, they don't believe it was a 6th century B.C. real Daniel. They say it was a 2nd century B.C. forgery Daniel, and they made fun of that forgery Daniel for getting his history wrong because they said there was no such king of Babylon named Belshazzar. But you can always count on archaeology. Archaeology is always the friend of the Bible, sooner or later. And sure enough, when they discovered this cylinder, it has cuneiform writing, 60 lines of cuneiform writing all around the outside of the cylinder. And on that, in that writing is a prayer for the good health and the long life of Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar. There you go. He wasn't an imaginary figure made up by a forgery Daniel. He really, really was the son of Nabonidus, co-regent with him over Babylon. Um, and also another thing that the critics of Daniel used to try to point out was his supposed error in calling Belshazzar the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll see that right away when we start reading the passage. One time he's called Nebuchadnezzar's son. Five times he's referred to, or Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as his father. Well, the critics say he wasn't his father and son. It wasn't a father-son. It was a grandfather-grandson relationship. Big stinking deal. Everybody knows now that Hebrew, the Hebrew language and the Aramaic language didn't have any words for grandfather. Grandfather is not even in the Bible. You won't find that word in the Bible. But instead, they referred to them like as your father's father, 
for your mother's father or your son's son. I mean, that's how they called grandfathers and grandsons. Anybody who was um, in the direct lineage was a father or a forefather or a father's father. So that isn't even worth talking about, but I threw that in for free. Uh, <laughs> the reason they could, they did not think that Belshazzar existed is because they're really, other than that Nabonidus cylinder, there isn't much record of the man because he didn't amount to much. He didn't amount to much at all, either in the secular or in the spiritual world. He wasn't a great warrior. I mean, there he is. He's surrounded by the enemy, and he's having a big party. His old, grand, his old father, and Nabonidus was considerably older. I shouldn't say old because he was only in his 60s. That isn't really that old anymore. Um, but he was in his 60s, and his son is partying inside. He was about mid-30s. He should have been out, the one out fighting the enemy, right, the other way around, but... Um, he wasn't a good. He wasn't a good leader. He wasn't a good warrior. He wasn't uh, a good architect. He wasn't a good ruler. He wasn't great in anything. About the only thing that he was known for was hosting a great feast of debauchery and revelry and blasphemy that so provoked God that it won him the privilege, if you want to call it that of a personally handwritten message of doom <laughs> from God himself. That's about the only thing he's really known for, is receiving that message of doom, the handwriting on the wall. He was not where a king should have been. You know, God, we've already learned in this book, that God is the one who sets up kings and takes down kings, right? So God put him in that position. He was supposed to be, like every ruler of every state, um, he was supposed to be God's servant, and he was supposed to be a protector of the people, his subjects. And, uh, and that's, but he wasn't where a king should have been at all when he was surrounded by an enemy army. Don't you think he should have been alert? Like David, remember, that's when David got into trouble, when he wasn't out on the battlefield with his warriors. He should have been, he did have, still have some warriors in the city. He should have been encouraging them to stand alert for any suspicious movement. Um, you know, just doing what he should have been doing. And as I said, even his elderly stepfather was out there trying to protect people who didn't even like him. He was trying to protect Babylon, and the people of Babylon didn't even like him. But if Belshazzar had been alert... If he had been a concerned commander-in-chief rather than a prideful party boy trying to arrogantly impress his dignitaries with his confidence in the face of danger, maybe referring to them as just a JV team, I don't know, <laughs> then Babylon might have not fallen under his watch. Now, our outline for this chapter consists of five divisions. We're not going to get to all five of them today, but we are going to look. And this is, a, this is like Nebuchadnezzar. This is a spiritual journey. But this one is a spiritual journey downward because it doesn't end well for Belshazzar. So we're going to be looking at a degenerate Belshazzar, a distraught Belshazzar, a desperate Belshazzar. That's today. And then next week, a doomed Belshazzar and a destroyed Belshazzar. So let's begin by looking at a degenerate Belshazzar, verses 1 to 4. It says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. 
Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, isn't that a funny way to word that? Whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. And they brought forth the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes and his wives, his concubines, drank in them. They drank wine. There's a lot about drinking here, isn't it? These first four verses. Drink, drink, drink. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Now, feasts, great feasts, were not that unusual in ancient times. Um, But the Feast of Belshazzar, this bankrupt banquet, was unusual for several reasons. Reasons. It was unusual for its enormous size. It was unusual in the fact that it took place while the city was under siege by the enemy. It was unusual for the enormous or the erroneous sense of false security that the king and his guests had. And what was their security in? What did they think was going to protect them? Walls and a moat, a big moat and walls and their idols of, you know, God-made materials like silver and gold and stone, false security. It was also unique um, for the excessive sin that took place during this last banquet of Babylon. So let's talk first of all about the enormous size of this banquet. One of the main attractions of Babylon was the magnificent palace that the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had built and had located in the city center. The palace consisted of a complex of buildings, and one of them was its tremendous throne room. It has been excavated when archaeologists were allowed to go into Iraq and excavate Babylon. They found it, and it was 171 feet long, which is huge, and 56 feet wide, this huge throne room. And it very well may have been in that room, the throne room, um, that this banquet was held because it was large enough to easily host thousands of people. The king invited how many lords? 1,000 lords to be his guests. But that number doesn't include all those who would have accompanied each lord, such as his personal servants or maybe some bodyguards Princes, it does tell us that there were princes and wives and concubines there as well. Commentators say that there could easily have been at least another 1,000 guests in addition to the 1,000 lords. And then that doesn't even include all of the entertainers that they would have had. There would have been dancers and, I don't know, court jesters and jugglers and whoever else they would get to entertain them. There was an adjoining garden outside where they speculate there would have been a large orchestra playing music for the banquet and there would have been a choir of singers. Um, So there are a lot of people, a lot of people at this banquet. And trained, this is interesting, we've been talking a lot about peacocks lately, haven't we? Well, they actually had (laughs) trained, this is hard to picture, trained peacocks that were arrayed with gold and silver trimmed harnesses that were attached to miniature chariots. (laughs) And these chariots were loaded with meats 
and, and wines and all manner of exotic foods. And these trained peacocks, now the tables were massive. The tables, they said, were horseshoe shaped. And these peacocks were trained to walk up and down the tables, pulling their little chariots full of wine and food behind them. And of course, my mind thought, well, what if they poop on the table? <laughs> That's pretty gross. I don't know how they handle that. But I mean, you talk about exotic and just wasteful, but and that, that's how they had. So this was an enormous banquet. Um, and there were other banquets in ancient times that were, I think about at the book of Esther, it tells us right away at the beginning that King Ahasuerus had this banquet, huge, huge banquet, that went on for 180 days. That was the one where he, in his drunken state, he wanted Vashti to come in and dance before all, and she wouldn't do it, remember? He actually wanted her to come and dance naked, you know. That's what it, that was all about. But um, So they, they did. And when King Alexander, got, Alexander the Great got married, they, I think said something like 18,000 guests. So there were enormous. This wasn't the biggest, but it was big. All right, and another thing that was rather unique about it was that they were under enemy siege when they had this banquet. They were surrounded by the Medo-Persians and had been for some four months. And they were under the command of General Ugbaru, was his name. Uh, Cyrus wasn't there, but he had a general who was. And Ugbaru was a wise man. He had taken his forces and he had divided them into two forces. One force of his soldiers he stationed at the passage where the Euphrates flowed into the city. Now remember, Babylon had the Euphrates River passing right through the middle of the city. It was a 14-mile square city, huge, and the Euphrates River went right through it. So he puts one force at the Euphrates where it goes into the city, and he puts the other force at the Euphrates where it flows out of the city. That's going to become very important because how was Babylon conquered in one night? They I mean, I don't know why anybody never thought of that before, but they dammed up the Euphrates so that it was a dry riverbed, and they walked in under the walls of the city while they're partying. Nobody even was aware of it. All right, so another factor about the banquet, banquet was the erroneous security of the banquetees. Even though a massive enemy force was just beyond their walls and much of the Babylonian army had already been wiped out and Nabonidus, his stepfather, is missing. They don't know where he is. Yet Belshazzar foolishly felt very, very secure within his 14-square-mile walled city. He was trusting in the walls, which uh, were surrounded, first of all, by a 300-foot moat. I mean, a 300-foot wide moat. So, you know, you have to cross the moat, and then you get to the walls. Um, and the walls, there was actually a complex of walls around the city. The walls rose to a height of 300 feet. That's tall. What's a uh, telephone pole? 60? or 90 feet, I can't remember, but I'm 300 feet, that's tall. Not only did it go 300 feet up, but the walls went 35 feet down into the ground, which means you can't easily dig under to get into the city. You have to go 35, 40 feet down to dig under the city. Except the only place that the walls didn't go 35 feet down into the ground would be where? Where the Euphrates flowed in and out of the city. Mm-hmm. And also the gates, the city gates, were made of fortified bronze, and so Belshazzar was overly confident, 
overly confident that Babylon simply was impregnable. Now, Reynolds Showers, in his book on the, uh, Daniel, which is called The Most High God, he writes this, quote, Nebuchadnezzar had made Babylon into the world's mightiest fortress. The outer wall surrounding the city was so thick that no battering rams or other instruments of warfare were sufficient to knock it down. A second inner wall and numerous fortress towers and ramparts made any attempt to scale the walls suicidal. You know, if the enemy tried to, you know, like you see in movies, you know, put ladders up and <clears throat> scale the walls, they would have been instantly put to death by the guys up on the walls. As a result, Babylon appeared impregnable. The walls of Babylon had built, been built over the Euphrates River, which flowed through the city at all times, providing a constant source of fresh water. The Babylonians supplied the city with enough food to maintain its population, get this, for 20 years. So no wonder they're eating so lavishly at this banquet. You know, I thought maybe they'd just be eating their P's and Q's to, you know, save their food supply. But if they had enough for 20 years, and I laugh, what is a Q? My dad always used to say, make sure you eat your P's and Q's. Well, I ate my P's, but I never did figure out my, what my Q's were. <laughs> Oh, mind your P's and Q's? Is that it? And, how, and what are they? What are your minding? Oh, your manners. Your P's and Q's are manners? Well, I had to eat them. <laughs> Is that the difference between the North and the South? You guys have to mind your manners and we have to eat our P's and Q's. <laughs> Anyway, ancient historians, I'm still reading from Reynolds Showers. You know what his name is? You know what they call him? Have you, you ever read his books? He's a great theologian. His, his name is Reynolds, but they call him Rainy. Rainy Showers. <laughs> he said he could have shot his mother. All right, ancient historians indicate that in light of these great preparations, the people of Babylon laughed at the siege of their city by the Medo-Persians. So they're in the city laughing. You know, they, we can outlast them for 20 years. We're never going to be, you know, they're never going to be out there for 20 years. So they're just laughing away. We've got all this fresh water coming into the city, enough food for 20 years. So ha, 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 you Medo-Persians, have fun out there in your tents. Well, Belshazzar's lavish feast was his way of demonstrating how unconcerned he was about the enemy. He erroneously put his, his false security in his walls, his moats, and in toasting gods of man, um, not man-made materials, but man-made gods. His flippant attitude and his excessive party were purposely, probably, staged so that he could ensure all of his lords, all of his dignitary, his nobles, of their safety. See, he needed to assure them, okay, we're fine and safe. Because if the people of the city anticipated great hardships ahead for them, like if that siege should choke off their water or their food supply, you know what they might do? They might depose him as their king and accept Cyrus. And in fact, it's interesting because we find out that was the feeling of the people in the city of Babylon. They actually would have rather had Cyrus than Belshazzar. 
he wasn't very popular. He was a party king after all, you know. He's having this big feast and wasting money and tax money for his friends, but the people are suffering. And what happened when Cyrus later on in history actually did enter into Babylon, you know what? <laughs> the people praised him and shouted. They were very happy when he came marching in the city, and they, they actually greeted him as a liberator. Isn't that interesting? Especially one group of people, the Jews, because God had predicted through the prophets that there would be one named Cyrus who would come and liberate them. Isn't that interesting? We'll get to that too. But the Jewish people were very happy that Babylon was conquered by Cyrus. All right, excessive sin. Um, Nebuchadnezzar had been guilty of pride and oppression. He had oppressed the people, but Belshazzar was not only guilty of pride and oppression, but insolence, audacity, and stupidity, and excess. He needed the very same cure that his grandfather had needed. He needed a large dose of what? Humility. He needed to go to God's school of humility, and he did that very night. But tragically for him, he had already used up, Belshazzar had used up his period of probationary grace. Remember, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a year between when he said he would be struck like a beast and when it actually happened. But Belshazzar had had, think about this, he had some 25 years to think about his grandfather's proclamation of his faith in the eternal sovereign God of heaven and earth, and to study all the circumstances regarding the great life change of his grandfather. And Daniel was still a captive in his city. You know what Belshazzar could have done? He could have turned to Daniel, he could have summoned Daniel into his court and asked him many, many first-hand questions about his grandfather and his dreams and, uh, you know, the dream of the Im great image and the dream of the great tree. And he could have asked, uh, maybe Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are still alive. I don't know. But if they weren't, he could have asked Daniel about the fiery furnace episode and that miracle. And yet, he didn't pay any attention to his grandfather's testimony, his grandfather's changed life. He didn't care about history past. He demonstrated no interest whatsoever in the God of the Jews and the God of his grandfather, or in the prophet of God, Daniel. So at his grand feast, Belshazzar gets it in his mind that he is going to get everyone involved in a kind of a praise service. This is a praise service for the gods of their own making. And the confiscated idols, remember Nabonidus, what he had done? He had taken all the statues, the idols, out of the suburbs, and he had brought them into Babylon. Well, apparently what Belshazzar did in preparation for this banquet was he got all those idols, and he collected them, and he put them around the, the, the throne room or wherever the banquet was held. And so all the idols are there in the throne room. And he has all this set up ahead of time. And then leading the ceremony, he gave and encouraged everyone to toast the dumb deities that are looking out at them, you know, from their blank, with their blank stares. And I went online to find out how many gods and goddesses the Babylonians worshipped, and I actually scrolled down, kept scrolling down to count, so I could give you this next sentence. They worshipped 130 different gods and goddesses. Now, that's a lot of toasts, isn't it? Because you want to make sure you don't leave anybody out. Oh, we forgot that one over there. Got to toast him or her or whatever. And so 
many goblets of rich intoxicating, intoxicating wine were drunk because this is one way that an idol worshiper proved their devotion, drinking. They had another way of doing it too, which was with prostitutes. So with each toast, the minds of the king and his guests got number and number, right? Number and number. And the music probably got louder and louder and more sensual. And the behavior became increasingly lewd and degenerate. Uh, the great, great Greek historian named Xenophon, who was a student of Socrates, he says, he wrote, that the Persians knew this was apparently some Babylonian feast day. And these per the Persians knew that there was going to be a lot of drinking and revelry that night because of that particular Babylonian festival. And that is why they chose that particular night to invade. That makes sense. He also said that once the Persian soldiers got into the city, you know, in that dried up riverbed, once they got in there, they started acting drunk themselves and shouting like they were drunk, you know, <laughs> and that way they protected themselves because everybody just thought that they were part of this, you know, <laughs> party, this banquet. Herodotus wrote that the Medes and the Persians easily overtook the city because her citizens were drinking, dancing, and merrymaking in celebration of a festival. So I guess it wasn't only those in the banquet hall, but the citizens themselves were celebrating whatever festival this was. So this is a whole city of drunken people, merrymaking, eating, drinking, and being foolish, right? Well, when Belshazzar had really, it says in verse 2, when he had really tasted the wine, what does that mean? It means when he was deep into his cups. What would we call that? When he was drunk, when he was really intoxicated, he felt bold enough to defy the God who was uh, as his, who the God his grandfather had decree, decreed that no one in all his realm was to speak bad against. Remember that decree after the fiery furnace? I think it was over in chapter 3, verse 29 or something. He issued a decree that if anyone in all his realm spoke bad about the God of the Hebrews, they were to be cut up in pieces. Remember that one? Well, he dared, his own grandson dared to defy that decree. He defied the God of the Hebrew captives by directing his servants to bring forth all of the silver and gold vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem in one of those exiles, or maybe all of them. He took a little bit each time, I don't know. He and his drunken guests, he decided, would use those very vessels to drink their drunken praises to their gods. It was a deliberate act of desecrating God, wasn't it? I mean, it was deliberate. Because the, vessel and the vessels were the only items that were there to represent the worship of God and the temple. And he knew about these vessels. He knew that they belonged to the Most High God. And that they had been used in the worship of the Most High God. You know, you think about it. The Babylonian Empire had conquered many nations, right? Many people groups over the years. And therefore, they had stolen vessels from many temples, to many other gods and goddesses. So, you know, he could have had his choice of, of any vessels. He could have sent them to, you know, get the vessels from sin, you know, the temple of sin or whatever. And yet he deliberately, specifically called for the vessels that came from the temple of God. 
And what was wrong with the, the, the goblets they were already drinking out of? You know, you wonder. I mean, I think the Chaldeans got to him. I really think Belshazzar was anti-Semitic. And he did this on purpose. So boozed, here's another title I thought of calling this lesson, boozed Belshazzar. <laughs> but boozed up Belshazzar, he's essentially saying, when he does this, he's essentially saying, this is in your face, God. Take this, and what are you going to do about it? We're using your vessels, God, to uh, your vessels of gold and silver to praise our gods of gold and silver. So let me see if you're real. Let me see if you can do anything about that. It was blatant. It was open rebellion against God. Um, because Belshazzar is not ignorant in all this. And when Daniel comes in, he basically tells him that. He was not uninformed about the God of Israel and the miracle of the fiery furnace and the conversion of his grandfather. He had heard about his grandfather's dreams and how a Jewish, of all people, a Jewish captive had been promoted to the greatest positions in the kingdom. You don't think he liked that like the Chaldeans didn't like it. Remember, Daniel was the head of all the wise men and uh, prime minister. He knew what he was doing was going to be considered blasphemous by the Jews, the captive Jews of his city, and by their God, and even by his deceased grandfather. But guess what he did? He did it anyway, didn't he? Furthermore, he used those vessels as part of his drunken debauchery. Historians tell us that these pagan feasts were essentially drunken sexual orgies, as you've already figured out. Live today was their motto. It was outright hedonism at its best. Pleasure was the ultimate goal and their way of life. The nobles and their women, and of course there were prostitutes, they call them concubines, but they're just prostitutes. They, they had it all. I mean, they were just living for the day. Live, what is it, what's the uh, expression? Live... Live, to, live today because we die tomorrow or something like that. I thought they could say, well, we die tonight. <laughs> Better live it up now. <laughs> um, but they, they basically had it. I mean, they're being fed by trained peacocks. And that, I mean, that's pretty, I don't know, it's just awful. Anyhow, but they themselves are all peacocks, aren't they? Strutting around thinking they're something. Peacocks and peahens. <laughs> they worship created things, not the creator. They toasted their gods of silver and gold, and they mocked the true God. And Daniel points out the irony of all this in verse 4. He tells us, in fact, that what Nabonidus, because he was an idol worshiper too, what Nabonidus and Belshazzar and all the Babylonian banquet guests saw as their powerful pantheon of superior beings, they were nothing more than chunks of gold and silver. And, and, and look, look at the list. It goes right down that image, doesn't it? Gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone. The only thing missing is clay. I mean, you know, just material. They're, they're putting trust in chunks of material. Now, we think that's ridiculous, isn't it? But you know how many billions of people have believed in things like that? Bowed to, kissed, worshipped? I mean, you can even see it in our country. You just go get your nails done. Um... <laughs> But, you know, they're trusting in them, but none of those, none of those are going to protect them in the hours ahead, are they? So Belshazzar, um, he didn't learn, he didn't learn the his, from the history of his own kingdom and what his own grandfather could have taught him, but he, he's getting right up into God's face and essentially daring him to do 
anything about it. Like his city, I guess he himself thought he was apparently invincible. Not only could the enemy without, he thought, not get within, but he also thought the God above, if he was real, he couldn't do anything about what he was doing. <laughs> what a fool. The cup of God's wrath was full. He'd crossed that mysterious line again, right, between God's mercy and his wrath, and God took up that insolent challenge of Belshazzar. Out of the sleeve of the dark night came the hand of God to write a mysterious message on the plaster wall near the king's throne. And suddenly, just like that, you talk about a fast sobering job. <laughs> suddenly, the drunken, degenerate, deliberately defiling despot became sober, sick, shaking, and seriously distraught as he should be. So let's look next at a distraught Belshazzar, verses five and six. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote against, over against a candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. I love the King James. <laughs> Suddenly, strange fingers, as I said before, it's not, just, not even a hand, just fingers. Strange fingers appear. I'm sure they all thought they were really drunk, you know. <laughs> what are we seeing here? But strange fingers appear, and the lewd laughter quickly turned to fear. I mean, terrible fear. The king didn't find those mysterious fingers funny at all. In fact, he's so frightened, what, what, what's going on with his knees? <laughs> his knees are knocking together. So what that entire well-armed Medo-Persian army outside the walls had not been successful in doing, just a few fingers from the hand of God did. Brought fear into the heart of this foolish king. Verse 5 says that the hand wrote against the candlestick. This would be where a large lampstand illuminated the wall. It was where the fingers wrote the message because that location would best be seen not only by the guests but by the king himself. They say that lampstands were generally placed where the king sat. In fact, it could be that the divine fingers wrote their message right over Belshazzar's head. There was an archaeologist named Coldaway who excavated Babylon. He's the one who found that Babylonian palace that we talked about, this, you know, the size of the throne room. And in that throne room, he discovered... <laughs> now, how would a second century forgery Daniel know this? He discovered that throne room actually had plaster walls. That's amazing. That is really amazing. No one but a man who had been there would write that little detail. Daniel had been in that throne room many times. He knew the walls were plaster. But there were, there were plaster walls, and there was a niche in one of the walls, which was believed to be where the king sat elevated on his throne. And the lampstand would have been next to him. Likely above that niche were written the words, many, many, tekel, peretz. And we'll talk about what those words mean 
probably next time, or next time after that. I don't know yet. <laughs> but the king's demeanor, his, his countenance, immediately went from, you know, the senseless, dumb look, you know, like in La La Land that a drunk has, but he went, immediately went from d drunken joy to sober, dreadful fear. I mean, sheer terror gripped his foolish heart. It, his countenance probably turned from red, you know, when you're drinking, face turns red, to what? What color do you think his face is right now? Sheer white. His licentious behavior, behavior came to a screeching halt. Whatever was going on in that room, everything came to a screeching halt. It says the joints of his loins. Uh, now that's interesting. We're loose. What, what do you think that refers to? Well, well, it sounds like that too. He may have wet his pants. <laughs> everything was loosed. <laughs> but literally the word joints refers to knots. K-N-O-T-S, it's referring to the knots, the vertebrae of his spine. In other words, his spine was just loose like, you know, like rubber. His whole spine was like rubber. His knees are knocking together. His spine is loose. So you know what that means? He couldn't even stand up. And I think that's interesting. He probably fell to his knees. Probably fell to his knees. Hmm. Um... He was weakened all over. His strength completely left him. His knees began to shake, you know, knock one another. God was trying to shake Belshazzar, and he succeeded, <laughs> but not enough. Uh, but he's trying to shake Belshazzar and the whole, the whole, all those riotous dignitaries. He's trying to shake them awake. They should have. What should they have done immediately as soon as those fingers appeared? They knew who they were mocking they should have all fallen on their faces, prostrate, repented of their sin and their blasphemies. But did they do that? Did he do that? No, they didn't. They're just fearful. You know what? In the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, the Lord over and over and over again, just read through the book of Revelation, is going to give the world warning, handwriting messages on the wall. They're going to have messages in the sky because meteorites are going to be falling. They're going to have messages in the land when everything's burned up. They're going to have messages in the water when it turns to blood. All kinds of handwriting on the wall messages, right? There's going to be just a multitude of shocking things taking place on the earth and in the sky that are going to shake people with fear. There's going to be a whole lot of people looking just like Belshazzar. Spines like jello and the knees knocking together and they're going to be so fearful. But instead of falling on their faces in repentance because they even know that it's the wrath of the lamb. Instead of falling in repentance before him, what do they do? It tells us they take their fists and they put it up in the face of God. And they're angry at him. In the days of, of, the, of Daniel 5, God shook just one king and one nation, Babylon, but one day, and it's coming soon, one day he is going to shake all the rest of the kings and all the rest of the nations. It says in Haggai 2.7, I will shake all nations. And then the desire of nations will come. That is another title for the Messiah, the desire of nations. There's going to be a lot of Gentile rulers looking like Belshazzar. Really. Their knees are going to be knocking together. Their hip joints unable to hold them up. Maybe wetting their pants. I don't know. 
when the desire of nations shows up, Jesus Christ. Well, the king, so he had two reactions. One was physical, and we just talked about that. His other reaction was emotional because he got desperate. So let's look at a desperate Belshazzar versus, um, first of all, we're going to see one group he calls in, and I call these guys the answerless worldly men. Let's look at them first, verses 7 to 9. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in, here they come again, <laughs> this bunch of losers. Then came in all the king's wise men, but... They could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Well, going back to verse 7, <clears throat> sounds like Belshazzar screamed. He was so fearful, he may have screamed at the top of his lungs to summon all his wise men. What he saw on that plaster wall near him or maybe even above him was written in his own language, but he could not make any sense of it. He probably knew that that cryptic message was from the one he had been blasphemously challenging, but we again find that this king had learned absolutely nothing from his grandfather because who does he turn to in his time of need? <laughs> the same threefold bunch of worthless, worldly, wise men. He turns to them for divine uh, answers to divine re revelation. And do the worldly wise men of this world, do they know how to interpret divine revelation? No, because they don't have the right equipment at all. You ha you ha that has to be spiritually discerned, and they're just natural men. They don't have the spirit. They don't know how to interpret it. But, you know, he doesn't learn his lesson from his grandfather, and he calls in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. None of them, you notice, none of them have even a single word of response. Not one. I mean, it's in their own language, and they can't figure it out. And they don't answer him at all. And notice, neither do they advise him on one who could answer their problem. They don't like Daniel, do they? And now they know Daniel's out there somewhere, wherever he was living. And yet they don't advise him to go get Daniel. He's the one who can do this for you. They keep quiet about that. One thing I did notice is that he didn't, at least he didn't say, if you can't do it, I'm going to cut you up in pieces. So maybe he did, was a little more mellow than his grandfather in that area. But you know, as the old baseball saying goes, three strikes and you're out. <laughs> this was the third time third time that this group of worldly wise men had been summoned to help a Babylonian king and not they were not I mean they have proved now that they're not even worth their weight in salt and yet throughout the times of the Gentiles kings and world leaders continue to do the same thing don't they they continue to go to the wrong sources to figure out what on earth is going on don't they do that yet today try to figure everything out, and they go to the professors, and they go to the elite educators, and they go to Al Gore, and they go, you know, for their answers. <laughs> and, and nobody has a clue what is going on. It, it's just, mm. anyway, as Belshazzar explained what he wanted from the men, 
who had noticed this too. They hadn't been invited to the banquet, had they? These elite, proud, wise men and these Chaldeans, they hadn't been invited to the banquet. Hmm. But uh, when, he, when he asked them, we, we realized he was indeed emotionally desperate because what does he offer them? He offers to give up quite a bit of power. He offers to make the one who can tell him what it means the third ruler in the kingdom. And he tempts them with a scarlet robe and a gold chain. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me, especially since what he's offering them is just basically nothing because that night Babylon's going to be gone. So you get to wear a scarlet robe for a couple hours and be a third of nothing. But anyway, it would have tempted them at the time, and yet they still have nothing to answer. And this is because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, because they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Today, rulers and people are world over. You know this. Ask anybody. Listen to the news. People are seeing the handwriting on the wall. They know we're living in very, very, very perilous times, but they don't know what it means. And they don't know what to do about it. There is great fear and anxiety in our world today, isn't there? World over. People are anxious about collapsing financial markets. They're anxious about uh, job security. They're anxious about crazy leaders with nuclear bomb capabilities. They're worried about global warming, which they are going to see, you know, if they don't get saved before the tribulation. Um, they're worried about out-of-hand crime and, of course, the caliphate goal of radical Islam. A lot of things to really be serious about and even more. So what does the world need desperately more than anything else? Yeah. And they need daring Daniels and Daniels. They, they need us. They can see people. I mean, they need people who can not only see the handwriting on the wall, but can interpret it for them. And that's where you and I come in, because Christians, we are the only ones who can read the handwriting on the wall. We are the only ones who have the key to interpret it. And what are the keys, I should say? Two main keys. We have the equipment to spiritually discern. We have the Spirit. Holy. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's the main key. And we have the Scripture. We have the keys to interpret. But are they turning to us for answers? No, sadly they're not. So we need to go out there and tell them the answers, even you know, if they don't want to hear it. That's our job. Well, the result of the visit of the completely answerless wise men only further troubled Belshazzar. In fact, verse 9 tells us that his countenance was so changed in him that his lords were astonished. And they must have started whispering among themselves, saying, Isn't this our great, proud, confident ruler? Um, so why is he so absolutely shaken about this? What's going on? And the servants, you know, the servants would have begun to whisper, and as would the entertainers and the musicians, etc. And so therefore, it didn't take very long for word to spread throughout the palace about the mysterious handwriting on the wall in the throne room and the shaken king. And eventually, that word reached the ears of the queen. And I love this queen, whoever she was. But she gets word of it, and obviously she is a woman 
with enough confidence in her royal position to come before Belshazzar and all his lords without having been summoned and to give her godly, wise advice. And so let's look, and I only have another paragraph and we'll be out of here. The advice of a wise mother, verses 10 to 12. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Of course, he was going to die in a few hours, but let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man, don't you love that? There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, now here she's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king I say thy father. You notice how she's emphasizing Nebuchadnezzar, your father, actually your grandfather. The king, your father, your grandfather, the king. She's just really pushing that. You know, you didn't learn anything from him, but she's reminding him. The king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father made master of the magicians. He's the master of all these guys. Why didn't you call him in? The master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king... Your grandfather named Belteshazzar. Now notice this. What does she say? Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. You know what that is? That's a command. <laughs> she doesn't suggest you call him. She says call him. Who is this woman? Well, we're not told who she was, but she notice she was not in attendance at this feast, was she? She didn't want any part of this. She may not even have been invited, I don't know, but she was not there. That tells us something. That tells us she wasn't Belshazzar's queen. She wasn't his wife. Because it did tell us that all his wives and his concubines were at the feast. Now, Dr. John Wickham, who I highly uh, admire, he actually came here to our Bible study years ago and spoke, and he's a famous author and very knowledgeable, and he does studies of... Um, ancestries, etc. Well, he suggests, and others do too, that this was Amethyst. Remember, we talked about her, the age, now she would be old, the aged widow of King Nebuchadnezzar, who we speculated perhaps had, with Daniel, held Nebuchadnezzar's throne for him, you know, held up the fort during those seven years when he was out in the field eating grass. And so she and Daniel perhaps worked together to hold Babylon together. And she got to know Daniel really, really well. And that's obvious by everything she says about him. We note that she had unusual boldness, which would rightly be hers as the widowed queen of Nebuchadnezzar. So apart from the customary salutation, O king, live forever. I mean, everybody says that when they come before the king. O king, live forever. I guess that's just what you had to say. Although I went back and looked to see if Daniel had ever said that, and he never did. He never said, O king, live forever, because he knew they wouldn't. <laughs> he didn't want to be a hypocrite. But she, besides that, she never, she doesn't say anything else to Belshazzar that's even remotely reverential. 
She does not demonstrate that she respects him at all. And uh, at, if she had been his direct blood mother, you know, his mother, his own mom, if she had been that, you would think that she would have said something positive about him in front of all of his lords to kind of boost their assurance in him, you know, her son, the king. It seems more like that she was indeed the queen mother um, of Babylon, the widowed amethyst, because her manner uh, uh, is, you know, straight shooting. I mean, she just gets those guns out and shoots them straight from the hips. She tells Belshazzar much needed advice that wasn't even cloaked in a suggestion. She doesn't say, maybe you should go get him. She tells him what to do after revealing her insightful knowledge about Daniel. She knew um, a lot about him and that he had brought light, brought light and understanding and wisdom to Nebuchadnezzar. And she gives a command. She says, now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. Does she have a lot of confidence in what Daniel's going to be able to do? She doesn't say he might. She says he will show you the interpretation. So she has a tremendous amount of absolute assurance in Daniel, and she doesn't show very much honor or respect to Belshazzar. It was good motherly advice. Sadly, I'm not saying that the woman knew the true God. I hope she did, but it doesn't sound like it. But she did know about Daniel. And Belshazzar, who had just mocked the God that he knew Daniel worshipped, he was so desperate that he did call for Daniel. He took the queen mother's advice. And once again, then, we find that the stage is completely set, isn't it? The stage is set for the man of God to enter front and center. And that he does next week. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we do know that in our world today, indeed, there are people, rulers and people everywhere who are at least seeing the handwriting on the wall, but they don't know, they don't have a clue what it means. They don't know what to do about it, and they're, they're so desperately turning to all the wrong sources for their answers to the problems of this world, when, as these ladies already know, the answer is in your son, Jesus. And we have, we have, we have the keys. We can tell them, because especially if we know the prophetic word of God, we know where this world is headed and we know how fearful it is to fall in the hands of the living God. And so, Lord, may we be faithful to be like Daniel, to be Daniels, and to get out there and, and interpret for people what is going on and how desperately they need to bow the knee now, willingly, before it is eternally too late. Lord, we love you. I do pray that you will use each woman as your witness this week and that she will have a blessed week. And that all of us will be able to come back next week to, to see your man enter the scene with his godly wisdom and advice about you. Lord, I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.